You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Tom Kosnick, and I'll be your host today at this session of the Draper Fisher Jervison Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Program. Um, as you know, this program is brought to you each week through a collaboration with the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. We've been working together on this since 1995. It's also generously underwritten by Draper Fisher Jervison and is recorded for viewing later by the Stanford Center for Professional Development. You can see these seminars both through the SCPD website, and you can also go to something called eCorner, which is ecorner.stanford.edu, and you can get the full-length version, you can get the podcast version, and you can get short YouTube-length videos of the guests being their most brilliant. And if you haven't started to download that stuff, it's really fun to do and to share with friends around the world. So I would hope that you would share the moments that you have here in person with friends in other places. It's my great pleasure tonight to introduce you to somebody that I've been stalking as a personal hero for a while because he's had a leadership role in two of my favorite companies. One of them is eBay. Anybody shop on eBay? A few of us? Anybody sell on eBay? Any, anybody who sells? Oh, good. We've got, we've got going both ways. Um, and that certainly is something that's changed all of our lives. And then there's Yelp. How would you know what to eat if you didn't have Yelp? And I promised Jeff I wouldn't talk too long, so we just were so happy that you're here with us tonight, and um, we'd like to give you a very warm welcome. Come and join us. Thank you very much, Professor, and uh, thanks, everybody, for having me here. Um, it's fun to be back on campus. Uh, I was asked a couple times uh, how often I'm here on campus, and the answer is actually I, I never left. I, uh, I was a student here. And I was thinking as I drove down today, and it's, it's uh, quite hot uh, out there, um, I was thinking about uh, a time when I lived at school back when we had to you know, walk barefoot both ways in the snow. And, um, and I did live in a house with no air conditioning. I don't know how common that still is, but uh, it was really, really hot a couple of days. And so they had the claw turned on, which I think they may not this year because of the drought. So a couple of friends and I took beach chairs and sort of set up with a 12-pack in the claw and just sort of hung out there for the afternoon. We did this for a couple of days in a row, and, and no one seemed to mind, so just sort of sat there reading. Um, I no longer do that, unfortunately, but I am still on campus because I come here for sporting events and uh, a variety of things. I actually take meetings all the time at the Ariaga Alumni Center, which is an awesome facility. Um, let's see. Quick things. We got some Yelp users in here, hopefully. Okay, yay. That's good to hear. Thank you for that. Um, so Yelp was founded in 2004. Uh, we went public a couple of years ago in 2012. A little about me, other than going to Stanford, I uh, did a couple of years of consulting after school, management consulting, and then joined a couple of startups after that. One was called Classifieds 2000, another one called Voter.com in the sort of middle and aftermath of, of kind of web 1.0 bubble. Um, one of those worked out pretty well. The other one, not so well. I then went and spent five years at eBay uh, in a variety of roles, and then joined Yelp as the 10th employee, and then have gotten to participate in a, in a fabulous ride over those years. Um, one of the questions that I'm most often asked is, what was it like to go public? And um, as I thought about what to chat with you all about today, uh, I thought this might be a perfect topic, because this is a question that, a little bit like being asked, what's it like to be a father? cannot easily be answered in you know, 10 seconds of an elevator or at a cafe or something like that. Um, so, so when I'm asked that question in an elevator, I often find myself saying something like, uh, it's pretty good, or you know, just sort of you know, uh, not having anything worthy to say. So, so what I thought I'd do today in the question of what's it like to go public is actually try to break that down a little bit into its component parts. And I think you know, the, the starting question is maybe best asked as, uh, why would you go public? Right. Why would a company want to go public, a private company funded and whatnot, and you go public? And uh, you know, I guess the, the place to start there is, um, how many of you are familiar with the concept of venture funding and how it works in its form? 
Okay, it looks like half-ish of the room. So I'm, I'm going to do the super version, layperson version of, of this. But it's if you wanted to start a pizzeria, the typical way to get financing, if you didn't have parents with deep pockets, would be you'd probably go to a bank. Right? You go to a bank, bank lends you money, and you pay that off just like you would a car loan or a house loan over a period of time. Okay? Typically, if you want to start a startup company, technology company, and hire potentially expensive employees, that kind of financing, bank financing loans, are not really accessible to you. Bank's not going to give you millions of dollars, right? Because you have no collateral. You have nothing to pay them back with, and you have no cash flow to pay them back on. So typically, you know, what companies around here do, and the reason we all talk about venture capital and whatnot, is you take an equity investment. Standard rule of thumb on this would be you go to a venture capitalist, he or she makes you a deal, you negotiate that, and you end up giving them effectively 20% of your company. Obviously, it could be much more or much less, but that's kind of be a nice round number to stick with. And in exchange, they give you a pile of cash. Hopefully, that's a fair trade for everybody. What the venture capitalist is betting on, right, when he or she makes 10 of those investments, is that a couple of them are going to go belly up and money's going to be gone. Right? Some of them, they'll get their money back, and they're hoping that at least one out of those 10 investments is a home run, for which million dollars in returns 10 million, 20 million, 50 million out. It's kind of the simple rule of the game. They tend to have, most of these funds have a 10 year time horizon. And so what does that mean? It means that when they give you the money, the idea is they're going to get it back sometime in the next 10 years. So when we raised money, uh, which we did from the beginning of Yelp and in before my time, we took money as equity investments in this form. Okay. We, had, we were really lucky to have great investors. Our first three investors were Max Levchin, who was the co-founder of PayPal, gave us our first million dollars. Then we uh, raised money from Bessemer Venture Partners about a year or so later, raised another $5 million. And then about another year after that, we raised money from uh, Benchmark Partners and raised about $10 million then, or $10 million then. Right? And then sort of it went on from there. But those were the first three and, and kind of key board members, um, which is also part of the deal. Right? Typically, when, when the company or the, the investor gets that 20% of your company, they also sort of get a vote. Right? So they get to be a member of your board and, and as a result, have a voice in key decisions in, in your company going forward. Okay. So now that you've taken that money, your deal is pretty much at some point in time, you're going to have to pay your investors back. Right? And your choices for that are pretty simple. You're either going to sell your company, assuming it becomes worth something. Right? If it's worth nothing, then no one cares. But assuming it's worth something, right? you're going to have to pay your investors back. And you have two choices. You can sell, classic acquisition, or you can go public. There are other alternatives. I'm sure there are people in the room going, yeah, there's this other scenario. Realistically, though, those are the two that are most common. Right? So that's it. The next question, though, becomes then, OK, so why didn't you sell early? Right? We were really lucky at Yelp. From a relatively early time, in the first year or so, there started to be signs of life. We started to have hundreds of thousands of people and then millions of people coming to the site. It looked really interesting. We got started in a second city, and then a third city, and a fourth city, and it started to spread. And we thought, hey, we might have something going here. And so um, not only were we able to attract venture investment, right, which allowed us to raise more money to pay the bills and, and keep going and expand to new cities and whatnot. But we also attracted acquisition uh, interest. So we did have interest, and, and we would often maintain these dialogues with larger companies who had you know, larger war chests. Um, and we got close to selling a couple times. Once, when we were about two years in, we, uh, we got close to selling for about $100 million. Um, another time, when we were about five years in, we got close to selling for about $600 million. And we didn't sell either time. Um, you know, the, the short version of why we didn't is that the founding team and the investors and board of directors actually thought the company was best served by staying independent and seeing it through. There's pros and cons, right? There, there's oftentimes, I mean, you're making an expected value calculation at that point in time from a purely financial perspective. The short version at both of those exit points was if we had taken the money and sold out, that would have been best, at that time anyway, it would have been a good outcome for the founders and the early investors. They would have done really well. Right? The rest of the employee base and the entire Yelp community and the site we had built, it wasn't really clear that that was going to be better for Yelp, the product, and yet the company and the community. Right? And so it puts you in a little bit of a bind if you're on the board or in a position to help make that decision. Is this actually in everybody's best interest? 
In many situations, what happens to companies when they're so lucky to have that inbound acquisition opportunity is they end up selling. And there's really two ingredients that it would take to enable you to not sell in that situation and to keep going. And those two ingredients are, one, your investors and board have to have deep enough pockets that they don't actually need the money right now. And two, they have to see enough in the story to believe it's actually going to be worth more one, two, five years from now than that payout is worth today. Right? Both of those ingredients are really critical to kind of get through that acquisition point and kind of keep moving on. You know, at the end of the day, I guess what I would tell you is what really motivated us and what kept us going is that in some ways, a lot of ways, an acquisition is kind of the end of the company. Whereas the IPO is really just the end of the beginning of a company. And good, bad, or otherwise, those of us involved you know, have pretty big eyes and think that what we're working on has the potential to you know, change the world for the better and be a lot bigger 5 and 10 and 20 years from now than it is today. Um, and that keeps us uh, motivated and coming to work every day. We were really lucky, back to our investors, we happen to have great investors. People sometimes talk about the brand names associated with investors. And that can be a good indicator. A lot of it, in my experience, has to do with who is the individual who's sitting on your board who's making that investment. What is making him or her tick? right? And what is their realistic time horizon associated with that investment? As it turns out, in retrospect, we didn't really know any of that going in. We got really lucky that the three individuals that I was talking about earlier who represented Benchmark and Bessemer and then also Max himself um, from PayPal didn't actually need the money. They certainly were interested in the money when it came around at those acquisition gateways, but they didn't need it then, right? And I think we all understand the difference between needing the money now versus, you know, kind of wanting it and it's interesting, but I could wait another year or two for delayed gratification for a better payout. And we were really lucky that in those cases they were, they were uh, willing to wait. The other thing was, you know, everybody sort of saw what we had going and was able to say, hey, if things go well, I think there's a chance this thing could be worth a lot more two years, five years, ten years from now than it is today. And what were the ingredients? I'm often asked that, like, how did you guys see, you know, things that allowed you to keep going? There were, there were a couple of ingredients um, that we had that, that made it interesting to keep going at those gateway times. Um, one was we were in an industry that was already really lucrative, and it was transitioning online. So the Yellow Pages, Yellow Pages have been around for decades. Really lucrative industry, still shockingly big industry, even in the U.S. Um, and, um, and it was really clear and had been clear by the time, you know, we're talking 2006 and 2009, uh, that it was going to find its way online, meaning the advertisers, the users, therefore the money was going to find its way online. And we thought you know, we were really well positioned in this marketplace and such that even if we didn't win, right, even if we were second or third in this market, it was big enough to support a really big, interesting business. And we thought we had the ingredients of a well-built company um, and product and sort of playbook, go-to-market playbook, that would enable us to sort of continue to scale that for years to come. And so when the investor group and the founders looked at that, they said, like, you know, hey, we feel reasonably confident that we can keep going. Which raises, I'm going to go to sort of a next part of the question now, right? Which is, okay, so, so now, you know, we're two years in, later we're five years in. So we've got a bunch of employees now, as well as some early smaller investors who came in with those big investors, who are actually now five years into an adventure. And they've been, you know, in the case of the employees, making relatively lower salaries, myself included at the time. And you know, getting paid in options, which you know, have a theoretical paper value, but you can't eat them. Right? So how do you solve, as, as Andrew Mason once put it, the money problem? Right? So we had what, what you might call this money problem, which is, OK, we decided to stay independent. We didn't sell. You know, we continued to not sell. And we kept saying, we're going to go for the long term. But these options are still just paper. How can you turn those options into money? And um, this is something that's changed a lot in the last five years or so. Uh, there was, and we were really lucky to basically find another investor. In this case, the firm's called Elevation Partners. It's actually Bono's investment firm from U2. Um, and we were able to come up with a deal with them that enabled us to bring some more money into the company. That's what we call primary capital. But also to enable early employees and investors who wanted to 
to sell some of their shares to Elevation. This turned out to be a pretty interesting time for the company because, again, especially the second time that we, uh, that we didn't sell, it got really public. So you can imagine you're an early employee. You've been making this you know, not very high salary for a number of years, and you've got these options you can't eat over here. And you're calculating, hey, those would be worth you know, X, Y, and Z if you guys had sold. Boy, that would be kind of nice to be able to get a little access to that. Um, how are you going to solve that problem for me? So what we decided to do, uh, and the deal we were able to work out with Elevation, was um, every employee who was vested, meaning they had been at the company at least a year, could sell up to half of their options to Elevation if they wanted to at a market-established price. That turned out to be a great thing. It was distracting for about a month, and it was a little bit complicated. But what it enabled all of those early employees who wanted to to do was take a little bit of money off the table, de-risk a bit, and then get back to work and keep building a great company. Um, so that turned out to actually be a pretty important milestone that enabled us to ignore the problem of either selling or going public for another couple of years. So now, so that was in you know, late 2009, early 2010. So now we get into 2011. The next question, of course, becomes, so when and what did cause you to go public? How did you decide it's time? And there's a couple answers to that question. The longer um, kind of slow evolutionary answer is we always had this number in our head, probably a couple CFOs and CEOs we had talked to earlier had put it there, that was when you're at $100 million in revenue and you have some positive cash flow, you're probably ready to go public, right, if you have a sustainable $100 million in revenue. And we were eking up on that at this point in time. So we kind of knew at this point, and this is, I guess, probably spring of 2011, we had a sense that we were going to do mid-80 millions in revenue that year. Um, business model was actually looking pretty consistent and, and growing still fast based on previous year. And you know, we could sort of see it. So it sounded like, okay, maybe we're getting into that territory where we should be thinking about it. So that's kind of going on in the back of your mind all the time. And then funny enough, the straw that broke the camel's back was our then-CFO, Vlado Herman, who had been an early employee and, and critical guy, resigned. He came to me one day, and uh, without going into gory personal detail, Funny, funny side story, his wife was also running finance at Facebook at the time, and they had two young kids, and they both had these crazy commutes. And, um, you know, high-class problems, clearly, but, uh, they, you know, they're, they're living this nutty lifestyle where they're both just working all the time and have the, these brutal jobs. And so he decides to, you know, be the guy to put his hand up and say, hey, I'm going to go, you know, deal with the family for a little while. He gave us lots of notice. Um, but that became the time when, you know, when Vlado decided to leave, Jeremy and I kind of looked at each other and said, all right, well, I guess we've got to find a new CFO. Who are we looking for? Right? And that's quickly led itself to, maybe now's time. Maybe we should go public. Funny enough how these things happen, right? But um, you know, as you're asking yourself these questions, like, okay, who should we be hiring and what's the profile we're looking for? There are people who have been private company CFOs. Right? There are people who have been public company CFOs there's actually a relatively small pool of people who have taken a private company public. And the going public process itself is actually kind of a complicated, you know, tactical thing. And we thought it would be really advantageous if we were going to do it, we may as well use this opportunity when we're hiring to hire someone who's been through it once before. And so we did. Um, we, you know, effectively drew up a spec that said, all right, here's what we're looking for. Somebody who preferably has worked at an internet company and been a CFO of a public internet company, who preferably has actually taken one of those companies public, him or herself, right? And last but not least, who has you know, a shared sense of mission and value and purpose with those of us who actually work here so that we all pass the O'Hare uh, airport test of, everybody know that, what that is? That's the, if you get stuck in the O'Hare airport for six hours, can you actually hang out with this person and not want to cut your arm off? Um, so it's kind of an important test to pass if you're going to you know, hang out with somebody for, for most of your waking hours. So um, you know, that actually turns out to shrink the universe of candidates pretty fast, right? It's like, okay, you got to uh, you know, have somebody who meets all those criteria. Um, and we were really lucky to find one. Uh, so Rob Krolik, who's our CFO now, uh, was the guy we found in, in 2011. But the way that we attracted him and candidates like him uh, were with profiles like his was by saying, it's time. Everybody, you know, all you candidates know what Yelp is and you kind of know what our story is. We're going to go public. And we're trying to find the person that's going to take us public. And it enabled us to, to meet some fantastic candidates, including Rob, who, who we then brought on board. 
So then the next question is like, all right, so now you've decided, you've got your CFO. So what's that whole like, you're ready, but then actually going public? What, what does that involve? And I guess you know, the, the short of it is from the time we said go to ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange was about six months. And the, you know, some of the milestones that might be interesting to you in there were um, one of the first ones, once you sort of got your act together, you decide in general what you're trying to do. And of course, your financial house had to already have been in order to get this far. Um, you pick your banks. So this is uh, kind of funny how simple it is because you know, sometimes it, it, these things take on a life of their own in, in storytelling. But the reality is you put the word out to a bunch of the big banks, investment banks, and you say, hey, we've decided we want to go public and we're trying to pick a team to do it. We're going to pick a Friday and everybody's got an hour to come in and pitch. Um, and you know, we literally had, I think, eight banks come through on a Friday and you know, pitch us as well as a couple of our board members of uh, you know, what makes their services special and who from their team is going to participate in the process and what are they going to do differently than the other guys. And as you can imagine, as with most RFPs or those kinds of things in life, 90% um, of what they're saying is the same. And you end up choosing on the margin of a couple things they say that are a little different as well as you know, the chemistry of the people who are selling. Um, we were really lucky, again, in this situation. The, the banking team we chose was um, Goldman Sachs to lead the process, and then there were several other banks that participated. And um, the, the, interestingly enough, it's sort of timely because yesterday there was news that the guy who led our process, Anthony Noto, just left Goldman to take a new big job, and so he was in the news yesterday. And then the guy who co-led the deal with him, Nick Giovanni, got promoted to kind of take Anthony's job. So that was kind of exciting to see both of those guys in the news just yesterday. Um, but in fairness, they did, a, they did a great job on our deal, and uh, good to see good things happen to good people. Um, so back to, like, our, we've now picked our banks, so now what? So the next two months, basically, in the process, now that we've picked our banks, uh, is what's called writing the S-1. Who's heard of an S-1? All right, so S-1's this filing document. It's basically a document that's like this thick, really small font. You'll never read it, but it's the kind of thing you get in the mail if you're an investor. And it's supposedly your opportunity as a company. It actually is, but I say supposedly because in my experience, not too many people read it. Um, your opportunity to tell the world everything they're supposed to know about you to decide if they're going to invest in your company or not. And the way this works is because you've been a private company and you're now going public, you're not allowed to talk individually to investors anymore because you don't want any one investor to have unfair you know, information advantage over another. Okay? So you're, you're real quiet, and you're spending days at a time in conference rooms full of uh, highly paid bankers and lawyers arguing about the syntax of sentences that are on page 75 of this document. I'm really fortunate that I personally only had to spend a few days in that uh, room, but I will tell you that there were many other people spending many more days on this. So it's, it's a little bit funny, side note, to think about that that process goes on at every public company with some regularity. But that's what we get for, uh, for you know, being involved in that. Um, so anyways, S1 document gets crafted. You spend all this time making sure that the document is perfect. Everybody agrees on all the language throughout this very thick document. And then you come to a period of time where you file that document. Okay, what does that mean to file a document? Basically just means now it's available on a website and every investor or mom or dad or anybody in between who is interested in reading it can read all of the gory details of the financials of your company, what you think you're going to do with the money that you raise, how much money are you trying to raise, you know, what do you see as the prospective future interesting things about your company and whatnot. Okay. Next thing that's coming is what's called the roadshow. The roadshow, anybody familiar with the roadshow already? Yeah, heard of the roadshow. So the roadshow is a two or three week marketing period. This is the time where you as a management team get the honor of going and flying around the country to meet groups of investors, sometimes in large settings of you know, groups this size or larger, um, and sometimes individually with two or three or four investors who you know, tend to be large pension funds and control a lot of money. And so you basically have this two or three week period where you're, you're going around meeting with investors and the really funny thing about this, that's not so fun in the moment, but funny to talk about, is you have to say exactly the same thing in every one of those meetings. So you might ask yourself in the day of video, why is it a good idea to travel all around the company meeting with people individually saying exactly the same thing? I don't have an answer to that question, but it's just how the process works. 
And so we did it and we played along. And there were certainly some entertaining parts of that, um, such as you know, flying around on a private jet for the first time in my life. So that, that was kind of cool for at least the first day, and then that got old quickly, just like everything else. Um, and uh, there was a couple memorable moments where like, the CNBC crew was camped out trying to take footage of us outside of a um, hotel in New York. So we got to go in a secret elevator through like, a department store. And there was a secret elevator. We went through a kitchen in order to like, appear on stage at this event. So that was kind of memorable. Mostly, I would tell you, it's all a blur because I was in a bunch of different cities giving exactly the same answers to exactly the same questions uh, over and over. And then what's happening all through during this process, and okay, so maybe we should take a step back. Anybody have an idea why are we doing all these investor meetings? No. Anyone? Go, sorry. To sell the shares. To sell the shares, right. Because basically we want, you know, the, the whole idea with this process, right, is we're creating these shares. In our case, I think it was 7 million shares we were creating, and we were trying to sell them to these large investors who then give us money. And that's the price that then gets set on your shares so that anybody else who holds your shares, your investors and whatnot, can buy and sell those freely in the public markets. Right? So the reason that you're traveling the, the country is to get these big investors interested in buying your shares and effectively setting a good price for your deal. Okay? So as this is going on, the banks, who also control large sales forces, are calling into their clients right after you've met them and saying, hey, what would you think about those Yelp guys? You just talked to those Yelp guys. Obviously, you control, in many cases, billions of dollars. Are you interested in getting in on this deal? And if so, at what price would you want to buy? And how many shares would you like to buy? Right? So this is a really important thing. It's, it's all rather manual. It's kind of shockingly manual. But that's actually all what's going on behind the scenes is hundreds of investors are individually talking to their salesperson at each one of the banks, telling them how much Yelp shares do they want to buy and at what price would they do the deal. So then the day before we're scheduled to go public, so we're scheduled to go public on a Friday. We all meet up in, in Goldman's offices uh, on a Thursday night. We're done talking to investors. And now the key question is, do we have enough demand? You know, again, we were trying to sell some number of shares. I probably got that number wrong now. Uh, we were trying to sell some number of shares. And the question is, do we have the demand to actually sell that number of shares at the price we wanted to sell it at? I think we had just gone out saying, you know, we're seeking to sell shares at about $13 a share. That was kind of a made-up number, but we put it out there. And so then the question is, what does the market want to buy? So what the market told our sales forces was they wanted to buy something like 150 million shares compared to the 7 million we wanted to offer at prices ranging from the 13 we said all the way up to 18 19 $20. So now you have a really funny exercise, which again is basically a bunch of people sitting around a conference table and some people participating on a phone. Mostly bankers, but also our board members and, and us on the management team. And the question goes, okay, it seems like we have enough demand to go forward tomorrow, right? Because 180 is more than seven. Um, but what price should we actually sell those shares at? Right? Now, common supply and demand logic would suggest you should sell them at as high a price as you can get, right? Not necessarily. Anybody on why not necessarily? Yes. The prices can go up later on. Yes. You also give away a lot of your company. Our, yeah, that's that's true. If we sold more shares, we would give away more of the company. That is true. Yes. Quality of the investor who's going to hold longer. Yes, quality of the investor who's going to hold longer. All these are all true. And one last one. Yes. If uh, your price is too high, the market could collapse, which happened to many tech companies, and that'd be a horrible press. This is the real issue. Yes, he totally nailed it. Yes. If, if you pick a price that's too high, what could happen the next day is that the price could collapse. And so if, for instance, we had picked a price that we knew, for instance, remember we have theoretically 180 million shares that people want to buy and we only have 7 million to sell. What if we pick 25 or 30, right? And people tell us they're going to do that deal. If the next day the price collapses, we could have effectively a broken deal. So we have a bunch of investors now who, in that theory, you know, would have bought all these shares at a really high price, and they sell them immediately in the marketplace, which then could tank the price of the stock on its opening day. And we'd have a bunch of investors who got burned because they lost a bunch of money their first day in. Right? That would be bad. You, you don't want to do that. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to find kind of the sweet spot. And again, it's, it's all very manual, so it's kind of funny in this day and age. But you're basically trying to choose a sweet spot where your investors have a chance to make money and feel good about some gain but where you raise as much company, money for your company as you can as well, right? Because you don't want to just give away money. 
in our case, we basically, you know, at the advice of our, our bankers and kind of going back and forth and you know, trying to think that through and also watching some of the other tech deals that hadn't worked uh, shortly before our time, um, we ended up picking the price of 15. You know, this is a little bit of this, but you're doing your best to be scientific about it as well. Um, and, um, and then the next fun part of the equation becomes who gets them. So remember, investors told us they wanted to buy 180 million shares. As it turns out, when we kind of ask the question, like, is this always worked that way? It kind of always works this way. And the reason it kind of always works this way is the investors have figured this game out too, right? The hot deals are always going to be oversubscribed, means that even if they really only want to buy 100,000 shares, they're going to tell you they want to buy a million shares because they know the way to get 100,000 is to ask for way more. And then it's a little bit of a game for who's going to get what. And then it kind of comes down to a negotiation between mostly the banks who are involved on the sales side trying to give their clients, these various investors, allocations, which is a piece of the deal. We're going to give this firm 100,000 shares, sell this firm 100,000 shares, that firm 100,000 shares, this firm 50,000 shares. And then us on the founding and management team chiming in as well. Hey, we'd really like to give extra to that particular firm because they seem to really get the story. We think they're going to be long-term holders. We'd love to you know, have a relationship with investors who are going to participate in Yelp for many years to come. We'd rather you don't give an allocation to that firm because, frankly, those guys were really jerks in our meeting and they, you know, they were rude and, uh, and they were tough on us. And again, kind of funny, but, but a manual part of the process. So that continues late into the night. It's basically allocation until all those 7 million shares are accounted for. The deal then gets done by the salespeople who then go out and sell the shares. And the next morning, we go out and you know, we have the opportunity to, to ring the bell, which turns out, funny enough, the bell is a button at the New York Stock Exchange. And they, um, uh, the guy who's the CEO of the uh, uh, NYSE tells Jeremy beforehand, Jeremy's our CEO who's going to ring the bell. Um, he's like, yeah, so you have to push the button at exactly 9.30. And Jeremy says, what happens if I'm like a couple seconds late? He's like, we'll help you. So, you know, uh, it's not entirely clear to me if you actually are ringing the bell or not, but it doesn't matter. It feels good to push the button, and then, you know, you hear the noise, and, and everybody claps for a really strangely long amount of time, because it's all captured on video. And so they tell you, actually, beforehand, you should clap for at least three minutes. We'll tell you when to stop clapping. So if you've ever tried clapping for three minutes, it's really, this is a really long time, especially if you're clapping for yourself. It's a bit odd, but... Um, Anyway, really, really cool thing to be part of. And then we went down on the floor, which again is kind of entertaining because there's no longer a lot of people on the floor. It's mostly like a server farm um, with you know, a few dozen people. And, um, and then we watched sort of the market open. Um, and that's actually kind of interesting because there is a manual process again there because the first time the market opens and starts trading in your, uh, in your stock, the, the market maker is basically choosing the price at which the stock's going to open. Um, and he or she is trying to pick a price at which you know, the stock's not too crazy volatile because it almost definitionally is going to be when it first opens up because you're getting orders at all kinds of you know, different prices, buying and selling, and, and the electronic exchange is doing what they do. So anyways, it does. We actually end up finishing our first day at something higher than 15, which was a happy result, and, and kind of you know, that was that. So then, you know, the, one of the next questions I, I end up getting is kind of you know, the resulting question. It's like, okay, so what's it like being a public company, and how does that compare to being a private company, and is it different? And, you know, and mostly the answer is it's not that different. And it's mostly not that different, and that's by design. Um, we did that whole thing, as you recall, because we didn't want it to be the end of the company. We just wanted it to be the end of the beginning. Um, and mostly that's been true. Um, there are certainly some you know, regulatory things and, and things that are a little bit different about being in a public company than being in a private company. Uh, a funny example of that is about a week after I got back from, uh, from the, the stock exchange and the roadshow, um, one of our senior guys, a guy who runs our worldwide sales team, was going to be moving to London. So we had to adjust his compensation. He was going to get like a housing allowance. And of course, when we were a private company, you can imagine how that goes, right? It's a conversation between Jeremy and me and you know, Jed, who's the guy in question. We have that conversation. We sort of approve his compensation package, and you move on. Well, 
Turns out that needs to be a little different now because he's a named officer. And so what that means is any change to his compensation, even housing allowance, anything, right, it actually has to be filed into the public markets as a statement. And it's effectively the equivalent of a press release. And so, you know, we're like four days into being a public company. So I, I type off this email to a couple of our folks on our board saying, hey, I'd like to recommend that we make this change to Jed's you know, comp because he's going to be moving to London. And Rob, our CFO, fortunately was on the floor at the time, comes running over to me. He's like, can you please call them and tell them to not approve that yet? I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? It's like, because the moment they approve it, we actually have to file a release. And I'd really love to avoid you know, the fourth day of being public, like filing a statement saying we're paying our executives more. So um, it was an interesting learning experience. And in fact, that didn't get approved. And so we waited a few weeks and you know, it got dealt with. And it was what it was. No different result, but it was just kind of a funny learning for like, oh, OK, I guess we really are under the microscope now. And you know, all the little things that we used to do are uh, now you know, subject to a little more scrutiny than they were before. Um, you know, the other thing that's, of course, uh, tends to be on people's minds is like the stock price. What's it like to have a stock price that's just always out there and ever present? And it can be distracting. Um, I look at it. I know that you know, most of my fellow employees look at it and, and talk about it and ask about it. Um, you know, I, uh, on the one hand, I'd say I feel very grounded about it because I've worked at a bunch of other tech companies beforehand. And stock prices tend to be highly, highly volatile. So the, the way I think about it, especially in our sector, so I tend to think about it as, hey, if you're in it for a five-year time horizon, right, you don't really care because over time, the stock price will invest the success of the business. If you care about the stock price in a day-to-day or week-to-week time frame, boy, you're going to be terrified because this is going to be a roller coaster and it's going to be doing this and you have no idea. You know, Putin does something nutty in, a, in Crimea and next thing you know, your stock price is going north or south and, and very quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I equated a little bit to if you were in high school and you could know every good and bad thing everybody else in high school said about you at every moment of the day, that's what it's like having a stock price, right? <laughs> it's like somebody said something good about you. Ah, oh, the stock's up $3. Like, what is that? You know, and, and the alternative is obviously true, too. So that's a little bit distracting. Um, but the big picture, of course, is we did it for it to be the end of the beginning and, and you know, the beginning of the middle. Um, and so far, you know, that's been true. Uh, we take a lot of inspiration from some of the companies that have kind of gone before us and done what I would consider kind of great things in one form or another and, you know, look to them for inspiration. I, it, one of the companies I always have fun with because I've got young kids is Disney. And Disney's done some really interesting things over the years. Um, and you kind of look back to like, well, where was Disney when they went public? Um, they hadn't done much that you've heard of Disney about today, right? And, um, and so, you know, I think, if I recall correctly, at seven years in, which is around seven or eight years in when we went public, is when Disney first put out their first full-feature uh, animation movie, which was Snow White. Um, Mickey Mouse had been barely known by anybody, and Disneyland was still another, you know, 25 years away or something like that. You can look up all these facts on your own if I'm getting them wrong. Um, but... Um, those are the kind of things that keep us motivated. And you know, without giving too much of a Yelp show, I would just say that you know, what keeps me motivated when I think about kind of the, hey, where could Yelp be? Um, hopefully, I'll use it to find food and other things of that nature. I like to think about the use case of, hey, I'm driving a car in Nairobi. My car breaks down. I can pull out Yelp, and assuming I can get a connection, um, I can find a mechanic who's open now and available to come, fix my car, pay him or her, through the Yelp app, the end-to-end experience, helping me find local businesses and transact with them anywhere in the world. Um, now, you might imagine from finding sushi today in Palo Alto to you know, the, the use case I just described in Nairobi, it's going to take a lot of things happening over a long period of time to get that right. Um, but you know, it's enough of a vision to kind of keep us coming back every day. So that's what I had on the package stuff. Um, happy to answer any questions or talk about whatever you guys want to. I think I saw a hand there. Yes, sir. Was your total public issue sold before you actually went public for your investors? Yes. Yes, so the question is, and I guess I should probably repeat the questions. Is that the right format? Yes, I'm getting a thumbs up. Okay, Um, so the question is, was the total public issue uh, sold before we actually went public? 
Yeah, I'm not actually the finance guy, so I can't tell you, you know, technically what the time frame is. But what I can tell you is that total number of shares that we were intending to sell to bring the money directly into the company, for all intents and purposes, that got done the night before we went public. And then, and then I don't know when the money changes hands. That I couldn't tell you either. But effectively, that whole deal is done. And then going public is just the process by which they can now sell their shares if they want to and trade. So, yeah, sure thing. Yes? Um, yeah, so I read that your background is a mechanical engineer, but yes. everything that you have talked today is more about MBAs. So how did you transition from being a mechanical engineer and highly technical to being on the other side? Not so technical. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the question was: I, I did go to I was a ME mechanical engineering student here at Stanford, and um, you know how did I end up being a businessy guy? Um, actually, it all started with a summer internship. I did the crop internship program, which actually still exists today. I was at uh, I spent a year in Berlin uh, when I was at Stanford, and I got a six month internship at BMW uh, in mechanical engineering when I was there which was an awesome experience, by the way, for those who might still be undergrads and interested in German. Um, I spent probably the first couple months of that internship doing true junior ME tasks, uh, which in my case was not a whole lot more advanced than data entry. And I you know, got the experience of, it might have not been a positive experience, but I got a vision into, hey, what did that career look like for the first five or 10 years um, as a mechanical engineer? And don't get me wrong, mechanical engineers at BMW do really, really awesome things. It's just that the career path at that company at that time was really slow. And so it was kind of like you were going to have to put in your time for 10 years doing super grunt work in order to get to work on the cool stuff. Um, and then I, I got lucky. Uh, there was a guy in a group next to me who was sort of a, a recovering mechanical engineer, but who was also uh, an MBA who had gone to McKinsey, and it was a McKinsey consultant. And he was working on what's the next car BMW is going to build? And you know, basically doing market research and analysis and everything else, kind of doing the, the strategy-ish stuff on what's the next car we build. And he needed some help on his market research and presentation stuff. And you know, sort of saw me over here doing the data entry-ish thing, uh, and he pulled me into to his group to, to get to work on that. So I actually uh, got to work on the, the first presentation to the board of uh, the BMW SUV, which is now the X5 line or the X line. Um, this was back in, I guess, 93 or something. Um, and so I got a little bit of a taste of that. And I realized that like, I was just a much more interested in the sort of strategy part of the business, the, you know, what are we going to build, and, as opposed to the details of how does it work. And I know that makes me lame for all the engineers in the room, so sorry about that. Um, it's good to know what you like and what you're good at. And you know, it turned out I, I had a passion for, for that piece of the equation. Um, and uh, as a result, he had been in consulting. The guy I was working for at BMW had been in consulting. So I thought, like, oh, maybe that's an interesting thing to go do after college. And that's how I ended up kind of down that path. But I will say, for all those who are maybe like half-baked on an engineering degree and might, you know, anything I just said resonated, the quant skills I got through engineering and developed throughout the course of that program have been super important to me in the rest of my career um, and um, enabled me, I think, to be good at, you know, what you might think of as the strategy and analytical parts of business. Um, those people I see in business who don't have some sort of serious quant grounding just have a much harder time keeping up when things get complex, or at least arithmetically complex. Yes? Does uh, uh, Yelp have an acquisition strategy? And related to that, what do you see as some of the most interesting uh, spaces uh, in the ecosystem to adjacent businesses and what's happening now in social business? <coughs> yeah, so, so the question is, does Yelp have an acquisition strategy? And, and kind of related, what are other companies that I think are interesting? Um, I will totally separate those questions so as not to get into anything non-public. Let me just say, I, I think two companies that I think are really cool and that are both San Francisco-based and very interesting to watch right now are Airbnb and Uber. I know I'm not the first person to say that, so, um, but they are cool. I use them as a consumer, and you know, it's, it, I'm very interested in that kind of business, both because of my eBay background and marketplaces and then obviously the local aspect of what we do at Yelp. And so it's been fascinating to watch how they've both sort of tackled you know, kind of those, those, their related spaces or industries, as you might call them. We're clearly not going to be buying either of those companies, um, at least any time in the, in the foreseeable future. Uh, as to whether we have an acquisition strategy or not, um, 
Yes, sort of. We've bought two companies at this point in time. One was a, effectively a Yelp clone in Europe that was called Quipe. Um, so it was you know Yelp local reviews type of site uh, in Germany and France and the UK. And we bought that and have integrated that fully with Yelp now. That was about a year and a half ago. We also bought a restaurant reservation service called SeatMe that uh, we've now kind of rebranded as Yelp SeatMe and are offering as a SaaS version of uh, a, you know again restaurant reservation solution. And that was just last summer. That's been going really well so far. So those kind of models of acquisition are both interesting to us. Um, we're pretty big believers in sort of the focus of organic growth on like what we do. So I think you know, we'll continue to look opportunistically at if there are things out there that can kind of naturally fold into the Yelp story. We'll certainly be interested in that. I don't think we're big enough or have enough resources at this point to like be trying to bolt on things that aren't kind of naturally part of what we already do, though. Yeah. I have a question on profitability. Mm -hmm. So even though Yelp as a whole is not profitable, um, are there pockets, let's say San Francisco, Yelp in San Francisco, is that, are there pockets of profitability in Yelp? And it's uh, the costs are when Yelp expands in new markets. And then second to that is how long do you think it's strategic to stay in the red? Mm -hmm. So a question around profitability. All right, I'm going to quickly get myself into trouble here. So I'm going to give the short version of the answer. Um, there is total, you're absolutely right that on a gap profitability basis, we've been in the red since we've gone public. No question about it. You guys can go read all the financial statements. We tend to focus on adjusted EBITDA. Um, and what that does is it takes out stock-based compensation expenses. Um, the price of admission in companies like ours has been stock-based compensation. Um, stock-based compensation, when you think about gap, which is, you know, public accounting standards, does try to put a value on stock-based compensation. The reality is it's really hard to put a price on stock-based compensation that actually makes a lot of sense, especially stock options, right? So anyway, we can kind of get down a rat hole with that. But we take that out when we look at adjusted EBITDA. And it has turned out for you know, our time period that um, our cash flow as a company has actually been pretty positive. So if I recall correctly, and again, you can consult the real financial statements, I think we did $10 million in free cash flow this past quarter. Um, and so, or cash from operations this past quarter, which is pretty good. Um, so, you know, in that sense, in the sort of standard way that most of us might think about our family finances, um, cash flow is kind of a decent proxy for it. Do we measure the business, and at what point should we measure the business on kind of gap profitability and measure to that? Like, maybe we will at some point. Hasn't really been a focus yet. Look at a company like Salesforce.com that's much, much bigger than ours, and they're still not measuring themselves to gap profitability at this point. Obviously, you always calculate that, but it hasn't been a focus. To your sub-question about are there parts of the market that might have higher adjusted EBITDA than other parts, there definitely are. For example, the U.S. business is already, you know, looks like a pretty attractive business from an adjusted EBITDA standpoint. Um, and you could, as you imagine, kind of go down at an individual market basis and try to do that calculation. It gets a little funky because you end up very quickly trying to allocate costs of like, well, with this engineer that works on 10 different markets, how do we you know, take his time into account? And what about real estate? And so you know, it gets, gets a little funky. But yes, you can imagine that the later stage markets are a lot more adjusted EBITDA or contribution margin positive than the earlier stage markets. So. Yeah, question back here. Uh, yeah, you said before that when you guys were a private company, uh, you had lower pay for your employees, but to compensate for that, you gave them like more options. Yeah. So uh, you also allowed that uh, every employee with, of course, a year uh, or plus of experience at that company could sell half of their shares. Do you know in general how many how many shares each employee with a year or more of experience sold? Oh my, that's a very specific question. Um, so the the uh, what I I said a couple things earlier. One was that. You know, we had lower than market salaries uh, at that time early in the company's history, which is true. I mean, I think they were probably market in terms of other startup companies, but they weren't certainly what you could get. Or, you know, for instance, I made less in cash at Yelp than I did at eBay, right? It's kind of common that if you go to an earlier stage company, you're going to get a lower cash salary than you would at a bigger company. And in exchange for that, you get options. And so, you know, hopefully a slice of the future. Um, we did that secondary offering where employees had the opportunity to sell some of their shares to Elevation Partners back in 2010. And you know what was the average that people sold? I honestly don't know. Um, I remember looking at the spreadsheet at one point, and it, it seemed like probably a little more than half of people who could sell sold something. 
and then how much they sold really ranged quite a bit. A bunch of people sold the half that they were, you know, they could sell. Um, and then a bunch of people just took a little, you know, sold small amounts. And it really, really kind of came back to individual situation. Sort of back to, in a lot of ways, it was a, a small version or a microcosm of that stock point I made earlier, right? If you've got a five-year time horizon and you can afford to wait, most people chose to wait. And then others of us had, you know, nearer-term cash needs. You need to, you know, pay off your mortgage or pay part of your mortgage or, you know, buy a car or, you know, whatever it was your kind of cost of doing business for right now. You know, those people took more money off the table. Yes, sir. Can you tell us a little bit how did you grow from the beginning in terms of signups and, and so uh, vendors and, and users and how is now different from when the company started? Is your question um, how did we do it or like what were the numbers? How, how did you do it in terms of the strategy and the tactics? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that sounds like a whole other talk, but um, as a, so the, the question is like, how did we, you know, kind of grow from the beginning, and how did we originally, you know, attract both users and then, uh, you know, advertisers or, or paying customers in, into the fold? You know, the, the simple version of the question is, on the user side, the way that Yelp works is, and and what we believe makes Yelp special, um, is that the vast majority of reviews you will read on Yelp are written from regular reviewers. That probably makes sense. But I'm going to just sort of clarify that for a moment because if you were to use other review sites of all different kinds of products, if you go to Amazon, for instance, you'll see a lot of reviews for products and you look at that person's profile and they've written one product review. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's a very different model than our model. When you look at the profile of the users who write on Yelp, you'll tend to find people who have written dozens or hundreds of reviews. And they're effectively using Yelp as a kind of lifestyle blog. So how do we find those people? Well, it actually sort of starts one person at a time. We hire in every city that we're in somebody that we call the community manager for Yelp. And they're effectively an ambassador for Yelp in their market. Um, they become the face and voice of Yelp. And they start by you know, trying to recruit their mom and their friend and their kid sister um, to join the community and try Yelping. Right? And what does that mean to Yelp? Well, it means go explore all the different neighborhoods in your city and try out different businesses and go into different shops and restaurants and parks and, and then blog about them. Tell people what you think. And as it turns out, you know, when, when they start that, um, your mom may not like it, but your kid sister does, and, you know, and so on, as you sort of reach out to more people in your concentric circles, and then they bring in their friends, and so on. And it really becomes a grassroots, you know, on the street, people meeting each other and, and trying yelping kind of a thing. Now, as you can imagine, in time, what that does is that content then uh, brings in lots of traffic on the user side. How many people in the room, we saw hands and it was almost everybody here has used Yelp probably to find a business. How many people actually wrote reviews? That's a lot more than I would have thought. But that's great. Thank you very much. Um, so, you know, still a pretty small percentage of this room, right? As a general statement, what I would tell you is that it's low single digits percentages of all Yelp users are actually those who create content, right? Pretty common. But the good news is for everybody who writes reviews, you're going to bring in lots, like dozens or hundreds of people who read the reviews and for every one of those people who comes in and reads the reviews, some small percentage of them are going to go like, hey, that looks cool. I'll try writing, just like the people who just raised their hands. And they then become Yelpers, and it begins to feed itself. But that offline piece of the equation has always been really important to us. So as people start writing reviews, did any people who put up their hands for writing reviews, have you guys, any of you are elite members or been to a Yelp event? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we've actually got some. So, so some of those people who actually tried contributing actually get into the sub-community of people who are ongoing Yelp participants. And you know, the sort of the pinnacle of that is being a Yelp elite member. Um, and that's you know, basically being invited into the fold of this community who then meets and puts faces to names. And you know, among other things, it tends to actually keep everybody honest because it's you know, real people writing real reviews with real faces and all that kind of thing. So that's the short version of the answer on the kind of consumer and community and writer side. On the advertiser side or the customer side, that's different. We have a sales force that we've uh, built up over the years, and it's mostly a phone-based sales force where we call into local businesses and say something along the line of, hey, 100 people looked at your business on Yelp last month. Would you like even more of them to look at your business? Right? We've got a suite of ad products that we could sell you and show you what they are, and if you're interested, we can help you get started. And that's more or less what that conversation looks like. And um, we have tried offline sales and some other approaches as well. Uh, we found at this point that the phone-based sales force is the most effective, but you know, we continue to experiment with other things. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Can you speak into what you're saying at the office is like 
Yeah, thank you. This is a question that I do get a lot, and I really don't, I've never developed a great answer to it, and that is, yeah, what's my day at the office like? Um, let's see. Why don't I tell you about today, because that's the easiest for me to remember. It's hard to remember past, uh, past today. Um, so this morning, today was actually an investor-heavy day. It's interesting. I don't usually talk to that many investors in, in the same day. But uh, so today I had an early meeting with a group of Fidelity, Fidelity portfolio managers that were in town on what they call kind of a bus tour, going around seeing different tech companies. And um, what does that look like? That looks like a group of probably 15 portfolio managers uh, from Fidelity, who are, you know, some of whom are investors in Yelp, some of them are interested in investing in Yelp. And I answered a bunch of their questions with Rob, our CFO. Then I had um, a couple of one-on-ones. So one-on-one is kind of a, a recurring weekly meeting that we tend to do with each of us does with our manager and those people who directly report to us. It's a great format. It's pretty common at tech companies, I think, these days. But you know, it's sort of that parking lot opportunity to go through all the things that are hot in a given week and flesh through any issues that are going on. So I had a phone-based one-on-one conversation with Jed, the guy I mentioned who actually runs our worldwide sales force. He lives in London. So I talked on the phone with him for about 45 minutes and went through a slew of different things that he's working on, and and I had some questions and and things to go through with him. Then I did the same for about 45 minutes with the guy who's uh, head of our biz dev team. Um, We talked about somebody new he wants to hire as well as a couple deals that he's working on um, and whatnot. Uh, and, And so we did that. And then... I had a call with a group of people. Remember the community management team I was just talking about? Um, and so there's a group of probably about 15 of them who has a sort of recurring phone-based conversation because they're spread all over the country. Um, and, uh, and they wanted to ask me a bunch of questions. So it was actually a format a little like this, except I know them all. So they were asking me a range of goofy questions like, who's your favorite community director? Um, and uh, it's always good to pick your favorite children, it turns out. Um, <laughs> And then there was a fire drill in our building, so that was awesome. Um, so we wasted a good half an hour on like evacuating the building and having to stay outside of the building. But I got to chat with some colleagues who I don't normally chat with um, during the fire drill and had a sandwich. And then, what did I do? Uh, then there was actually another investor meeting, a couple more investors in from Wellington. So I sat with them. And then... I worked on some presentations for a management training series we're doing tomorrow. We're bringing, we actually, it's a kind of a new thing that I've been focused on right now. That's, uh, we have, we, we're growing rather fast. And so it turns out that in the last two months, I believe we've promoted 30 people into people management positions for the first time in their lives. You know, so they you know, tend to be a bunch of younger people who come to Yelp and they may be an individual contributor for a few years. Now we, you know, we promote some of them into people management. So it turns out we're promoting people so fast that it's actually really important to give them some like, hey, what does it mean to be a people manager? And here's some stuff you need to know. So we're bringing them all into San Francisco tomorrow and Friday, and I'm helping to lead that. So I've worked on uh, my presentations for that a little bit. Um, and there was one other thing that I did, but I can't remember. It's escaping me now. Well, and then I came down here, then I drove down here. And, the rest is history. That's a very long answer to your question. It's probably not what you're looking for, but hi. Hi. So you talked about being an employee from your experience. Um, you mentioned that the idea seemed like a good one. There's a great trend going online with Yellow Pages uh, money. Uh, can you talk about maybe the top three risks to executing on a great idea? Whether, for example, it might be not thinking about funding on time, whether it's not thinking about the right um, and by the way, are we going to, what's our timeline? Somebody going to cut me off? Is this the last question? Okay. The last question. That's good. That's a good one. So this is the, you know, of all the common problems that startups face, uh, what were the big, you know, strategic ones to us that, that you know, would have been a uh, disaster and, and that we most had to keep our eyes on? Um, you know, it's probably most of the same things you always hear. Um, funding and, and financing, uh, especially in the earlier days, is really important. It's really important to get it right. You know, it's obviously you need, you need money in order to kind of keep the lights on and, and do those things. And, and so, so money is important. But as I described in kind of the early talk about, you know, when and how did we get to being public and everything else, who you get the money from and under what terms, turns out to be really important too. 
Um, you know, there have been a lot of good ideas that end up getting sold early or killed early because, you know, the investors' ideas of outcomes were different from the, you know, founding team's different uh, ideas of outcomes. So, so that, you know, part of the chemistry is, is really important. The other obvious one is the people stuff. I mean, the people stuff is so important and it's soft and squishy for the reason that it's human. Um, but it's, you know, it's everything from that Chicago airport rule that I was talking about earlier to why are we here? You know, and, and I mean that less in an existential sense than in a like, well, what is it that motivates everybody to go to the office every day? Um, because inevitably, even the most senior longtime members of the team will have slightly different versions of what they want your company to be. And those slight deviations over a period of time, just like swimming or running or anything else, you know, can start to become massive uh, in the future. And so, so really that classic thing about like making sure that you have the right people on the bus and, and that you're all, you know, care about the same things. Turns out to be really important, and I guess that's a reason that you know, becomes obvious. And then distribution is critical. I mean, especially, I think, it's most obvious for an internet company um, because it's so tangible. Like, how are you going to get users to your site? It doesn't really just work that you can build something and people will show up, right? And it's that question you asked earlier is like, how do you actually get people to engage with your product and, you know, and then sell it, um, depending on what it is? And I, I think that's true for any product, but having a distribution strategy that's actually going to be uh, cost-effective in a unit economic basis um, and can scale, turns out to be harder than it looks. Um, and I think that shows up in all kinds of different businesses. So I guess those are the three, those are at least the three that come to mind for me. So thank you all very much for all the questions and the time today. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.